Okay, let's begin now with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise you tonight. We praise you on this summer evening. Thank you for the fellowship that we've had here this week, for the teaching from your word. What a Savior you are, that you would save us, but also that you would give us this rich, abundant life with family and friends, and that you would keep us until it is time to go home, to go home to you. Father, we thank you for the saints that have struggled and worked in our denomination. We pray that now that it is our turn to struggle and work, that we will do that according to your word, not enraptured in some emotional fit, but in according to your word and by your grace and by your spirit. Father, we do pray that you will help tonight as we consider again the matter of Christian education as we look at a couple of disciplines where we know that you are king and as we consider how we might work together to ensure that Christian education is a reality in our families' lives and work together so that Christian education might impact our culture even more. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, quiz time again. If you're ready, number one. Charlie will give your final exam tomorrow. <laughs> number one, what was the curriculum of our founding fathers in Puritan colonial America? What were the books that they used? Number two, what religious group took over from Massachusetts, took over in Massachusetts public life in the 1800s? Number three, how did Horace Mann, that ex-Puritan convinced the American public that state-controlled education would be good for them. He was just trying to help them, you see. And then fourth, finally, describe an important trend in psychological research which has provided meaningful work for those in the legal profession. <laughs> Let's see if you're with me. Okay. Okay, so here we are at our Last presentation on Christian education. I hope that the overall themes and the sub-themes and subplots have been clear to you. Uh, we've spent some time in Colossians, the second chapter. We've looked at uh, three topics so far. The, the teacher-student relationship. Who is teaching? Who, who is the authority they're teaching? Uh, teacher pedagogy, or the way that teaching is carried out in the classroom or at home. How is he teaching? Uh, last time, families and children at risk. Um, we've seen the studies on a nation at risk. We know that families and children are at risk, and we pointed out some of the history of how that's developed in our country. As we've gone from Christian content and Christian structure to Christian content progressive or humanist structure, and then finally, all the way with humanistic content and humanistic structure, I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about how to remedy that. So in our first talk, I really encourage you to see the contest, to see that there is an antithesis, that there is a battle going on. And we looked at the discipline of history. Then in the second talk, we talked about methods, methods for teaching. And I pointed out to you two idols that are very popular in the land today. And you've heard about this in the morning as well. The romantic idol, 
and the rationalist idol. The rationalist emphasizes the mind of man understanding things unaided by scripture and the romanticist, the subjectivist, emphasizes man creating reality, actually creating reality. It boils down to the same thing really, that man is God. Man is the ultimate reality. And we've looked at language and literature at that time. Last time, I really encouraged repentance on our part, to look at the record over the years and see how we really have squandered, that is in terms of a number of generations, we've squandered a great heritage. We've used up a lot of Christian capital in this country. The Christian memory is getting more and more faded every day, unfortunately, at large in the culture, and we need to work to remedy that. Well, tonight we'll talk about some ways to do that, some ways to work together on both curriculum and relationships in our Christian schools and Christian homeschools. But first, before we get to that, let's take another look at Colossians 2 and finish out the chapter and then discuss uh, some insights, some biblical insights in the disciplines of math, of science and math. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, and we will read verses 16 to 23 as we complete Paul's exhortation, his reasoned exhortation here to the Colossians. He's adduced quite a bit for us to consider, and he's exhorting us here to rest in Christ, beginning with verse 16 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, with whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Indeed, Paul here is encouraging us exhorting us, commanding us to avoid any kind of legalism, to not add to the law of God, to attend to the law of God, to attend to the scripture, but to not add to it with our own constraints and our own rules and regulations. And often this is a discussion at Christian schools, just what should be the rules and regulations in the school. I suppose if you had the students write one code, we might get one thing, the board another, and the parents another. A lot of times that does take some struggle to come together. What we need to be agreed upon is that we have the word of God to serve as our ultimate guideline. That is the standard around which a school board or the authority should 
gather to come to decisions about what the rules and regulations should be in a school. But the key verse here, I believe, the key emphasis that I'd like to make right here is in verse 17. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And indeed, this is a theme we've been sounding all week. Christ is sufficient. In fact, Christ is the doorway into which we must enter to understand what reality is. Okay, reality, that's a pretty broad word. That covers quite a bit. I would say that that covers history and language and literature, science and math. You see, Christ is relevant here as well. Again, I I continue to fight against a lot of my upbringing where I had church in one compartment and my schooling in another. So you read the scriptures and you do some Bible study and you go to youth group and you do all that stuff, mostly on Sundays, and then the rest of the week is something else as I went off to my public school in Pennsylvania, totally disassociated from what I was learning in church. How unreal that is. How totally unreal. Christ is the reality. Now, one other point I'd like to make about the passage on down in verses um, 22 and 23 is that the extra-biblical principles and regulations that people will present to us will seem to be very attractive. They will seem very attractive. Um, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, the various technologies or systems of thought that we get from our current day religions of psychology and humanistic education and so on do seem to be very impressive at first. When we see the experts with all the attention that society pays to them, it is pretty impressive. But it's just the appearance of wisdom. And this is so true today in our major universities. Consider again Harvard University, which is supposed to be the king of the universities. Then there's UC Berkeley, Stanford, and so on. There's an appearance of wisdom there that can be very intimidating if you let yourself get sucked into it. But we must not. We must rest in Christ. We must understand that the scriptures are sufficient for our basic guidelines. We must continue to remember that. Well, we didn't have time last time to look at the discipline of science. So what I'd like to do now is talk about science a little bit from a biblical perspective and then math as, as well to follow that and then finish up with some, I, some considerations from, from Colossians again about unity, purity and unity in Christian education. First of all with science, science from a biblical perspective. Well, you know, in a Christian school or a Christian home school, we will use the same test tubes. We will see the same pictures or images under the the microscope that the pagan scientists might see. But is there a difference? Well, there is a very great difference. And there are a number of ways to express that difference. One of them is to look at the history of science. This is becoming very popular even in secular circles today, but to go back and just look at where science came from and who were the scientists. Many, many of the beginning uh, originator originators of science were Bible-believing Christians. You see, for a long time, we didn't have science. Okay? The Greeks, two and 3,000 years ago, actually had the mathematics sufficient for science, but we didn't have it. Indeed, the world of the Muslims had much of the mathematics for it. 
but they did not come up with the same kind of cumulative scientific process that we have, have seen in the last two or three centuries. What was the difference? Well, the difference was the application of a biblical worldview to the study of the world, of nature as it called, it's called, but we really should call it creation. Without a basic belief in God and the God of the Bible who reveals himself to us, you really can't have science. And here's how that works. Why do an experiment if the world is going to change the next day? Why try to put together theories that describe the regularity in the universe if everything's going to go ahead and change the next day? Well, we might say, well, we know the sun's coming up tomorrow and it's going to be bright and the trees will be green and the sky will be blue and all of that. But how do we know that? How do we really know? And if you start to listen to philosophers, pretty soon you start to wonder yourself. But this worldview that comes from the Bible was very crucial for the development of science and technology three and four hundred years ago. And as we teach our kids in our Christian schools, we need to tell them about that. We need to show them by example that you don't have to have this inferiority complex that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can't be a great scientist. Because things have gotten turned around in our country, especially since the Scopes trial. Okay, the Scopes trial was in the 1920s. And that's where the Christians who believed in creation were pretty much embarrassed. They didn't really need to be. Actually, they gave a better argument. But through the press and the media, and now in the history books, the Christians were pretty much embarrassed about this trial where they were prosecuting a t teacher for teaching evolution in the classroom. And even though you know, the day was not won by the evolutionists, really the, the uh, public opinion changed dramatically against creation being taught in the public schools. And ever since then, fundamentalist Christians, conservative Christians, have really backed off from science and history and math and those kind of subjects. So we need to teach the kids differently. We need to teach them the truth about the origins of science. Science is really made up of words. When we think of science, science often we think of test tubes and, and rockets and uh, big equipment and so on. But the most important part of science uh, is the theory that's in science. The theory that, that generates the hypotheses that are, are checked out in the experiments. Those theories are made up of words. And indeed, Adam in the Garden of Edom, Eden was the first scientist because he was told by God to name all the animals. And there were re good reasons why he would name this animal or that animal. He was doing that out of service to his Lord. And that is the basic process of science even today is to name things, to put names on events that you see, whether it's subatomic or way out in space. The first thing that the scientists must do is give names to things, neutrons, protons, electrons, and all of that stuff, before he even talks about the dynamics of it or how they move and so on. So words are very crucial. Science really is, in many ways, the Christian fulfillment of the cultural mandate. Now, we've got to be a little bit careful with this because today, many people use science just to control things. And the control moves into a, a feeling or an attitude of power. Um, our country is great because we have great scientists and we can send a man to the moon. Aren't we powerful? Well, that's a perversion of the cultural mandate because as we fulfill the cultural mandate to subdue the earth, we should be bringing glory and praise to God, not to ourselves. Control is key 
in science. That's what you do in an experiment. Okay, when Mr. Scientist mixes up the chemicals and so on, he's controlling things. And that's good to study things by putting them under control. What's bad is if you get into a power trip about it and you think that you're better than everybody else because now you know how to control this stuff. So we need to avoid that. Another reason why a Christian would be very interested in science is because it demonstrates the regularity of God's universe. What a faithful, dependable God we have. The scientist studies those regularities versus the magic that a non-Christian scientist might start talking about, sort of a magical view, sort of like Baalism, that if we just do certain things in nature, then we'll get certain outcomes. Okay, it's trying to manipulate nature. That's what the non-Christian sort of science is. Whereas a Christian approach to science is to control things in order to subdue the earth to bring glory to God and to give him that glory at all times. One other point about the Christian nature of science is that science demands public knowledge. That is, you have to publish your findings and your results. It's not like the Masonic temple or like some kind of secret society where you have your findings and only a select few who pledge an oath can know the findings. To be scientific, you've got to publish your findings so that other people can replicate it, can, can try it out and see if what you found is true. That's a very biblical idea. To, to investigate something thoroughly with two or three witnesses, right? Doesn't that sound familiar? It's, very, it's inherent in the Bible to have this public knowledge approach. And it's um, very much against the secret societies. Well, one other thing that I'd like to do here in talking about science is to go back and uh, review just quickly this rationalist-romanticist difference and show you how it gets played out in science education today because there are two approaches to teaching science. One is the rationalist, and that's where you just present the facts and the theories and expect that the kids will just get them right away automatically and it's really not much problem, just like programming a computer. The other way to teach science, which is sort of the other half of the classroom, is based on that romanticist approach again, and it's called learning by doing or discovery learning. So it's the romanticist type. And these two often are played against one another. Because the rationalist says that, well, you just present the material to the students. The romanticist says that they have to get in there and play with the test tubes and touch things and work with the material in order to understand. So a lot of times they're played against one another. And they are different. This is often called expository teaching. That is where we put an outline up on the chalkboard and give you a lecture. You take your notes. And then when the test comes, you give back the material that was on the outline. That's expository teaching. Okay, you're giving an exposition on the material about Isaac Newton's laws or, or whatever in science. The romanticist approach is where you have to interact with the material. You actually have to put your hands on the uh, test tubes and, and on the, uh, the animals that you're studying and so on. And that's called discovery learning. And that's where you plug a person into a situation and just want, you just want them to experience reality. And that's because those people believe that you create your own reality anyway, so you need to have all these children here 
be gathered up and it just be in a rich environment where they can explore things and create this scientific knowledge. That's discovery learning. Now, don't those sound very different? They are indeed very different. Two different methodologies. But there is similarity between the two. Uh, this morning, uh, Charlie Dennison mentioned that while you may have these two errors, sometimes in the same person you have both errors, or sometimes in the same church. Well, also in the same scientist you can have both of these errors. I'll give you an example of that in a minute. Uh, but what are the commonalities between these two views, which seem so opposite? Well, first of all, both of these are man-centered. In a non-Christian approach to science, we're saying, if we're a rationalist, that we, without the aid of Scripture, can know the truth with our own mind. That is, we can create theories and we can do experiments. We can find out about the world with our own mind. Okay, so that's man-centered. Man can do it without any reference to God at all and what an insult that is to him. The Romanticist is also man-centered because they are saying that you create your own reality. And you see how that's man-centered. One other way that the two approaches in science education are the same is that they both believe in evolution. Okay, evolutionism. Whether you are some um, stiff sort of professor at a, a uh, prep school just presenting the theories and so on, or you are uh, at one of these uh, Summerhill uh, free play humanist, um, humanistic sort of schools where there's discovery learning, in either case, there's a strong belief in evolution in both cases. Whether you're Piaget and Dewey or more classical in your presentation of material and science, in both cases, there's a belief in evolution. So that's across the board. That's a similarity. Now, they may both be in the curriculum. And this is similar to what Charlie was talking about. We want to be careful here in designing a Christian curriculum that we don't just add one and one and get two. I'm not saying in my presentation to you that we should be both rationalist and romanticist. We can't just add the two together and get Christian. Okay? What we have to do is make the change right here in the basic assumptions. Instead of man-centered, we have to be God-centered. And instead of believing in evolutionism, it has to be creationism. Okay, if we have creationism and God-centered at the, at the base here, then instead of rationalist, we just have God's sovereignty, you know, the regularity in the universe. God's regularity. And over here, instead of romanticist, we'll have man's responsibility, personal responsibility. And responsible to whom? To God, of course. And if you can reproduce that diagram, you'll do fine on your final exam tomorrow. Now, this is kind of heady stuff, and I, I apologize for that. 
But it's very, very important to get this grid if we're going to be serious about having quality Christian education. It's very important to get this. And if you're a student in Christian education right now, it's important that you see this before you go to college. Because if you don't understand this, when you go to college, you'll be duped. And then somebody will have to untangle you after you've been duped by the college professors. Because you need this kind of critique. And probably the greatest exponent of this sort of critique in this century has been Van Til. Because you see how important we had to change the assumptions before we could change what was up above. So I hope that's helpful to you to understand some, some of these terms. Um, in the state of California, they do state frameworks for every discipline. And the state framework in science was just revised about a year ago. Maybe you've heard about that, where they practically mandate the teaching of evolution in every science class. And they're getting more and more aggressive. Right now, those frameworks are not laws, but there is a move by Bill Honig to make them laws so that if a school district did not follow it, and then ultimately, perhaps, private schools, if they don't follow it, then the state just won't count the work that you've, you've done in science. And you've heard about some of the political controversy uh, in this regard. But it's really interesting. I've studied that document because in the work we're doing in producing curriculum, we want to know exactly what the, the other side's up to. And in that document, we do indeed, indeed see both the rationalist and the romanticist emphasis. We see the rationalist dogma there because evolution is presented as an inescapable concept, a philosophical concept that you cannot argue with. And that's the same view that Carl Sagan has, our old billions and billions of stars and years uh, uh, Carl Sagan. Uh, that's in the state framework for this state of California, that we have to accept evolution as a concept. It's not even anything to be tested anymore. It, it's... They say it's the backbone of science. But at the same time in this document, they say that 40%, at least 40% of all science education must be hands-on discovery learning. That is playing with the stuff that your teacher has there in, in the schoolroom. Now they'll talk about debriefing and looking at this and that, but still, the discovery learning, romanticist approaches there if you're in the public school or if you're in a Christian school that's imitating public schools. One other point is that they've changed the, the scope and sequence in science now to a more thematic approach rather than a subject-by-subject -subject approach. Here's what I mean. Currently, we teach subjects like life science, earth science, physical science, biology. You're familiar with that. What the state wants the schools to do now is not teach it that way but every year have a little bit of earth science, a little bit of life science, and a little bit of physical science. So there's sort of a spiral. And the themes that they want the students to learn are themes like uh, energy, structure, measurement, and you know nothing wrong with that, but one of the themes is evolution. Evolution has to be woven into everything. It's not just one chapter in the book anymore. It's part of every page of the textbook. And so what I think is going to happen is that the public schools are going to get even more confused with this new proposition because it really does turn things around and we're going to have fewer and fewer 
good graduates coming out of the high schools that are able to take college science and so on. And then another five years after that, fewer and fewer technicians to make VCRs and radios and Walkmans and and all those those things that uh, grab our attention. Well, there's a lot of hard work in science if behind that fun equipment, and it's not going to be so much fun anymore. We have to keep pray, paying higher and higher prices from other countries because the other countries know how to do this stuff. Okay, so this the there are fruits of this, these approaches in education that we need to. to to keep in mind. Actually, evolution is very unimportant, unimportant to most discoveries in science. Uh, you could do away with evolution and you'd still have 95% of all the discoveries that have ever been made in science. So that's another uh, trick that's been, been pulled on us. Okay, let's move from science to math, especially since they're closely related. And here it's time for a joke break. A little joke. Now, I have to... Uh, set you up for this a bit, especially those people from Bayview. In fact, I need Bayview's help on this joke because you know this joke, but it, it'll, you'll get your cue and you'll, it'll fit in very nicely. This is about poor Willie. Okay, poor Willie. This is an Aggie joke. How many have heard of Aggie jokes? Okay, go to ag schools, that kind of thing. Okay, well, poor Willie had been in the university, Texas A&M, for 14 years. He'd taken every course, passed some, failed others, and he's just an embarrassment to the entire college community. He's a real problem. 14 years in college. Can you imagine that? Actually, that's not too far from the truth, because there are people that have been in colleges for 14 years. They call them professional students. I, some of my best friends are professional students. <laughs> but what are we going to do about Willie? Okay, this is a big problem. So they go to the academic dean and they say, academic dean, you have to do something about this. So he, of course, formed a committee. And they came up with this idea. Well, we'll give a final exam to Willie. We'll give a final exam. And if he passes the exam, gets his diploma, and he's gone. Fails the exam, then he's gone as well because, you know, we just can't have him around anymore. So they get ready for this final exam. And Willie reluctantly agrees to this. And uh, the dean comes up with another idea. In order to save uh, money on this, the exam will consist of only one question. Just one question on this exam. Okay. So the students and people in the community are starting to wonder, well, what will the question be? So they're going to they're going to have the test in his office, but not enough room to make people want to come. They're going to have the test in a hall in, in town and not enough room. And finally, they have to rent Aggie Stadium. Okay, Aggie Stadium, 70,000 Aggies in the stadium. And so one fine day, they all come out there, these 70,000 Aggies. And they're going to observe this final exam. So they're all there and sort of like the Olympics, you know. Uh, from one end of the stadium, the academic dean comes in with a scroll, with a, with a question. And from the other end, poor Willie. Poor Willie comes shuffling in. You know, this poor guy's put on the, stop, on the spot. And they have these microphones there at the 50-yard line. And they walk up to the microphones. And academic dean unfurls the scroll. And here's the question. What is 7 plus 4? Just a minute. 
Well, Willie gets this puzzled look on his face, beads of sweat well up on his forehead, red-faced, and he blurts out, Eleven. And the entire stadium with one voice says, Give him another chance. Thank you. <laughs> I think we should take this on the road. Huh? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> what road? <laughs> so, even the pagans know how to add. Two plus two is four, right? That's what it says in my notes here anyway. Two plus two is four. But the difference between the Christian approach to math, one difference between the Christian approach to math and the pagan approach is the question why. You know, why does two plus two make four? Okay, that's totally different. The pagan would say, well, big deal. Who cares? But the Christian educator knows that that's crucial. Two plus two equals four because there is a good God who controls the universe. And that's just crucial. I mean, that's our life. And not only, of course, with two plus two, but with our death, with our family, with uh, our work in life, all of these things require the gracious hand of God uh, working in his steady way. Aren't we commanded to do all things to the glory of God? Even our mathematics. Well, back to our rationalists and our romanticists, because there's a real neat distinction here between how the two teach mathematics. In fact, the rationalists might be called the new Pythagoreans. Now, Pythagoras was a philosopher back in Greece, and you may have heard of some of his mathematical formulas and so on, Pythagorean theorem and so on. Well, he was not only a mathematician, he was practically a priest. He had his own religion that was tied into all this mathematics. And for the rationalists in the university today, we see that math often is very much a religion. A man that I studied with at the University of Pittsburgh, O.K. Moore, Omar Khayyam Moore, who was really quite, it's a real name, (laughs) Uh, he was not an Aggie, he was very sharp. He was very existential in his view of life, very self-reliant. You know, schooled in the old school. He's about 70 years old or so now. Taught at Yale for 10 years. and Great philosopher of science. And very skeptical about a lot of things. Would just sort of laugh at the Christian religion and would see my involvement in it as a, that I just want some kind of uh, influence over people or something like that. You know. Very skeptical sort of thing. But what does he have to hang on to? Well, the one thing that holds his universe together is mathematics. Mathematics. Of course we can see that 1 plus 1 is 2. And of course we can do all these equations and so on. Mathematics is practically a religion because, you see, by the time we get to the 1990s, it's the only certainty that we have left. So many things are uncertain. So many things depend on your perspective. You know, we're relativists. I mean, we can look at like the Shinto religion. We can look at it this way or we can look at it that way. But... We do need certainty in our life. And for many today in the universities, mathematics is that certainty, the rationalist. 
Well, the rationalist, when he teaches the kids the mathematics, he is not very patient because he's this brilliant educator and mathematician who's taken all these courses and knows all the stuff, just presents it to the kids and expects that, well, they'll just eat it right up and memorize it and uh, understand it after the first look. He is embarrassed that it takes drill and practice because, you see, human beings are like gods. Their minds are like God's mind. And we should be able to get it all at once. And so he doesn't like to take the time for drill and practice. In fact, he would rather teach the second graders about set theory, you know, sort of a philosophical kind of approach. And set theory is important, and it's a, you know, it's a legitimate part of mathematics, but the first grader doesn't need it. The first grader needs to handle the basic operations of addition. And then, Lord willing, on to subtraction and then multiplication and division and so on. You see how that, that needs to go rather than a philosophical approach. So the rationalists are very much opposed to drill. Remember when the new math came in in the 60s? The new math? Well, that was set theory that came in. And we've seen the math scores go down ever since because kids are not given the opportunity to do the drill and practice with numbers. And a lot of people, especially adults, think, well, that's terribly boring. They'd never want to do that. But actually, if it's presented in the right way, kids like to be able to manipulate the numbers and get the right answers. It's rewarding in itself. And if you put the work in early, you don't have to put a, do as much work later. If you learn those multiplication tables, it sure is a lot easier to using your fingers and toes later on when you have to multiply 8 times 9 or something like that if you just put in the time to memorize the tables. That's a Christian approach to the teaching of mathematics as opposed to the rationalist approach. But what about the Romanticists? They have a distinctive approach as well. They have something called the spiral curriculum. That's where you get a little bit of every operation each year, a little bit of addition, a little bit of subtraction, a little bit of fractions, some decimals, in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, all mixed together kind of like the way they're going to teach science now, everything mixed together. Instead of what I would say is a more Christian approach to focus first on addition, get that down pat, then subtraction, then multiplication, then division, go year by year by year. Also, the teacher then in those respective years is responsible for the kids learning those operations. When everything's been juggled around, it's hard to pin any responsibility onto the teacher. And for some bad reasons, teachers sometimes don't want that responsibility. And so we have a problem. And that's on the Romanticist side. So here again, whether you're a Romanticist, or, we don't want to add these one plus this one plus this one and get two for a Christian education. We want to have a distinctively biblical education, which means that because God is good, there's regularity in the universe, so we can add with numbers. And yet we can't completely uh, have an airtight formula that explains everything in the universe. There is still mystery, and we're frail creatures. These memories, I have all these notes up here, these memories are not airtight, so it takes a lot of work and drill and practice and so on, and we just understand that it takes that work, but there's a satisfaction after doing it that, that you are competent and especially if you do it for the Lord. You've worked hard, you've done your best. Please stay away from the trap of being a perfectionist. Perfectionists never get anything done. 
because we're not perfect. We try to be perfect, we give up after the first mistake, and nothing gets done. And so we need to counsel our kids that way too. So math should be taught step by step with practice, with illustrations, and integrating it to the, the whole system of math so the kids can see the big picture, giving glory to God at every, at every point. Similar to those other recommendations we made about teaching a couple of nights ago. Step by step, explaining with practice, with illustration, uh, so that the kids can get it, so that they can be competent. Okay, enough for math right now. Um, Final remarks have to do with the purity and unity of Christian education in the 90s. And I'd like to conclude with a sports metaphor. I think that we need to work like a good basketball team. That's what we need to do. Um, I've always liked basketball myself. I don't know why that is, but in every job I've ever had, I've always ended up shooting baskets, whether it's been counseling or, you know, in, in uh, you know, teaching at college and so on, just always seemed that basketball was there and just kind of a fun thing to play with other people. And I think it is such an appealing sport because there's a lot of style and grace sometimes <laughs> as we play. Uh, there's frequent opportunities to score. There's frequent opportunities to be the hero, that kind of thing. Uh, there's a mix of one-on-one with teamwork. There's both of those things in basketball. So I think that's why it grabs us. Um, it's interesting to look at the different styles and types of basketball teams. You see, my proposition to you is that we need both teamwork and individual effort. That we need to have uh, guys who can play on the team and cooperate with one another, as well as those that can play individually, and each person needs to do both. Think about the winners of recent years. In February, I did this lecture, and I used Magic Johnson as an example. I can't use that quite as much anymore. Let's use Isaiah Thomas. Okay, Isaiah Thomas in the Pistons, right? A good team player, and yet can go one-on-one at the same time. The Boston Celtics, back in the glory days in the 60s and the 70s, they, were, they had great teamwork, and that's why they were, were successful. I see a Celtic fan over there now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But what about those Sixers, those 76ers, Philadelphia 76ers in the 1970s? Remember the year when they had George McGinnis, Dr. J, Daryl Dawkins, Lloyd, uh, World, Free, and they would uh, do their jump shots from 30 feet, and each person was sort of a hot dog as they played. They were very self-focused, relied on the stars, individual kind of efforts as opposed to teamwork. You need to have teamwork. That's what we need for Christian education in the 90s. And indeed, things are hard right now. I don't know how many of you are involved in Christian education. Uh, Maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're on a school board, but in many ways, I guess I would say that we're in a dark ages in terms of education in general and in terms of Christian education in particular. Where is the good curriculum? I mean, the good teacher today has to make up his curriculum as he goes along because the great textbooks just aren't out there. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And what about the relationships? And here's an issue that cuts across everything we do, our relationships with our brothers and our sisters. Okay, our relationships. You know, how do we get along with one another? The good basketball team has to have good morale and cooperation. 
But schools today are places of disrespect, um, especially public schools, but also Christian schools. Parents versus teachers, students versus teachers, parents versus students. Reconciliation and cooperation is possible in Christ, and that's what we should be working at. Um, as we look at other portions of Colossians, again, back to the first chapter, talking about the supremacy of Christ, we see that we need to rest in his work. Christ has done the work that can allow us to have good relationships and good curriculum, but we need to apply it. First of all, with curriculum. Let's keep in mind that Christ has created the world and sustains all things. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Christ has created this world and yourself and sustains all things? Now that's radical in its implications when you believe that. Or do you just fluff it off because you've heard it many times before? If we believe it, it affects every discipline that we teach, every discipline that we try to learn. And in our relationships, it affects all things too. Uh, you know that I work in a counseling situation often, and people come in and there are some very bad stories these days, very sad stories. People are upset, emotionally distressed. The first thing that we have to consider is the sovereignty of God. That's the first thing to do. That gets things under control. And it's not a trick. It's, it's rec recognizing God's truth. And the same is true when there's hassles in Christian schools and in the home. We've got to remember the sovereignty of God and the word that he gave us and the instructions that he gave us for solving those problems. The curriculum that we develop must be developed on biblical categories and presuppositions. Charlie Dennison called for Christian historians to, be, to come forth and be developed. And I just you know, echo that call. It's crucial that we do this work. We've lost the battle of the textbooks. We need to work on winning the battle of telecommunications, video discs, computers. I don't think the technology is going to save anybody or anything. It's a neutral thing. But we need to be aware of what's going on in the world today and be ready to use the new technology. And what about in our relationships? Here again, we have to apply the Bible first. Before we try to use our psychology, well, instead of using our psychology, uh, instead of using our own wisdom, our own traditions, we need to seek the reality of, the Christ, of Christ. How do we know that reality? By his word. So when, if we have a relationship problem in the school, hassle between the parent and the student, teacher and the student, teacher and the parent, administrator and teacher, back and forth, any hassles there, we need to apply good biblical counseling principles. We need to start with Matthew 7. You know, and as a speaker, I need to do this. As a counselor, I need to do this. I need to take the log out of my own eye first. And so, too, must we do that in any kind of altercation or argument or hassle that we have in the school. Take the log out of your own eye first before you try to remove the speck out of your neighbor's eye. And then we have to go to the other person, and uh, if we see there's a log in our eye, and consider this right now. Consider if there's a log in your eye in terms of your relationships at a Christian school or in a Christian home or even in your church or your presbytery. Is there a log in your eye? Before God, is there one there? Please look and see. If you see that there is one, 
then you need to confess that to the Lord, and of course he's faithful and just to forgive you. But then you need to put legs on your faith and go and speak to that brother or sister you've offended and ask them for forgiveness. The Bible doesn't leave it there. The Bible even tells that brother or sister what to do. That brother or sister is then to, to give forgiveness. Luke 17, right? That's seven times in a day, give forgiveness. Forgiveness means the promise not to bring it up again in judgment, in anger, to yourself, to that person, or to other people. We've got to stop the gossip. No matter how small our group is, we can still have gossip. We've got to stop that. We've got to treat things biblically instead. So the reconciliation can take place. Uh, The reconciliation can take place in our curriculum. It can take place in our relationships. And I pray that you and I will struggle and agonize as Paul is struggling and agonizing in this passage here, or as he was and he records it here, uh, being concerned about one another. This is how we'll have purity in our curriculum and relationships, and this is how we can have unity in our curriculum and our relationships. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for your outpouring upon us as a people here at this camp that you will help us to remember these biblical truths about perhaps more intellectual matters of curriculum and so on but also the personal matters and indeed Lord we know you don't make a a division between those two things your word is one and your word is truth And I pray that you will help us to see that your word is sufficient for all things. Lord, we thank you for the work that you did that we can now rest in. Help us to appreciate that work, that you came to this earth and you, despite being tempted like us, that you lived a a sinless life and then you nailed that code, that condemnation of us on the cross. And you overcame death. And you, you resurrected. And, and with you, we can count on our resurrection. We thank you for that work in which we can rest. And we thank you, Lord, that now that we have that faith, that you have made us born again, that you also give us the energy and the insight and the ideas by which to work according to your word. May our work be done in your rest. May it not just be a flare of emotion, a bundle of energy, a flurry of activity day to day without much thought or reflection or worship of you, but may it rather be work that is grounded in your rest. And Lord, we pray for Christian education in our family. May it be a Christian education that is effective, that reaches the heart of all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.